Welcome to another episode of Chan with a Plan, the podcast, a podcast providing career advice in easy, actionable steps for frustrated professionals, helping you overcome career challenges so you can stop feeling confused and defeated and start feeling focused and confident in order to excel in your career. And I'm your host, Max Chan. And in this episode, we are going to be talking about a trending career topic, the great resignation. And my guest for this episode, Christine Lullisher, will help dive into this topic more in depth and chat about how the great resignation is going to affect both the employer and the employee. So a little bit about Christine. She is the co-founder of C-Factor Community and the founder and CEO of Surefire Consulting Inc. She has multiple years of experience working with hundreds of professionals, managers, and executives to support their personal leadership development through coaching, consulting, and facilitating and building communities to bring these ideas together. Now let's get into my discussion with Christine on the topic of the great resignation. Hey, Christine, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Max. It's great to have a career expert like yourself on the show. And let's kick it off by asking the big question that's in the circulation in terms of the workforce, and that is the great resignation. So for people who don't understand what it is, they've heard it for the first time, or they've heard it before, but they don't fully understand what the great resignation is, can you explain to the audience what that is? Sure. So the great resignation, it was a term uh, coined by actually a Texas A&M University professor named Anthony. I don't want to say if it's Klotz or Klotz, I'm not quite sure how you pronounce his last name, but he called it the great resignation because what he was noticing as well as many other experts out there were noticing is that there seems to be a feeling many people are on the verge of or have already quit their job and all of this coming on the heels of, you know, living off of a year and a half pandemic. But, you know, overall surveys and studies are showing that quite a significant number of people are looking to leave. I I think it was one Microsoft survey said uh, up to 41% of the global workforce was thinking about quitting. So people have quit jobs before, Uh, like, for example, like, there's corporate companies that have like a bonus and employees have to stay for a certain amount of time before they can get the bonus. And once they get the bonus, they start looking around, right? So there are various times of the year where there is a bit higher of a turnover. Right. So the January this, turnover, right? Yeah, January turnover. <laughs> so like, why is it now like a lot of people want to turn over compared to like before? Yeah, that's a great question. I think what is really standing out with this one is you tend to see a lot of turnover happen during uh, really good economies. So, you know, you can think of it as being an employee's market in a really good economy where they can go to another business who's desperate for great skilled staff and will offer more money that, you know, or benefits, etc. This is a little bit different because it's not, you're not seeing it match necessarily with a really strong economy. However, people are still looking to move. And that can be for a number of reasons. I would say pay is definitely one of them. I think I was reading that people moving, they get about a 6% bump in their salary. And it was actually Dan Price, who is a big advocate for better pay. He was saying that you get a 6% bump in your salary if you move jobs. But if you're staying in your job, very seldom are people getting a 6% increase. You know, you might see more around 
two or three percent like cost of living increase. So that's definitely one of them. You know, many other reasons like people have had time to reflect for the past year and a half, figuring out where they want to be spending their time, how their companies have treated them during all of this. Definitely the whole uh, remote work. Some of the people really started liking it and rather stay in that environment. But, you know, many companies are trying to plan a return to work plan. And so that's not aligning with people's interests anymore. So there there are a number of different reasons, but it's all culminating together to end up at this, you know, 41% looking to leave the workforce. Yeah, like once the Pandora box opens of mm-hmm. flex work, it's going to be tough for people to go back to the nine to five, like office Monday to Friday. So do you see companies trying to say, hey, I know that we've been working uh, from home for the past year and a half, but I do need everybody back in the office Monday to Friday. Do you think that companies are trying to see if they can do that? Or you think like they're going to lose a lot of talent and have difficulty attracting talent? That one, I, I'm interested to see how it plays out. What I've, what I've been hearing from companies out there is uh, and, and employees out there is uh, a number of companies have done surveys to try to find out from staff, you know, where if they want to stay home full time, if they want to do hybrid, if they want to come back full time. The challenge with that is you get all of the above. <laughs> so you're, you're you're hearing from staff saying some of them would like to stay home all the time. Some, you know, would like a more hybrid really arrangement. Some really miss the office. So they want to go back full time. For those companies who have invested a significant amount in buildings and overhead, they want people to go back. So there are also some that you know, I'd say there's also companies that believe out of sight, out of mind. So are people working if they're not able to watch them? So they want people back for that reason. I've heard of other organizations saying they really struggled with collaboration and idea generation, doing it virtually. So they want people back in the office for that reason. And it will just be interesting to see how it plays out because, you know, the general feeling I'm hearing is employees aren't necessarily feeling heard. So they were surveyed, but they don't necessarily see their companies acting on what those results say. And then there are some that have given the choice to the employees saying, you know what, you know what works, you've done it for the past year and a half and do what you need to do to get the job done. Yeah, the old methodology of like manager, managing people is that if I don't see you at your desk, then I don't think you're doing the work, right? And the other aspect, employees like, hey, if I get the work done, like, why are you monitoring my hours as long as I get the results that you're looking for? Like, what's the problem, right? So there is a big debate between the employee and employer. Right, right. There can be. And just, you know, the way you look at it, it tends to be looked at as, you know, an old school view versus a new school view. It depends on what type of work's being done as well. Some just lend itself better to being in an office environment and, and, Others, you can do all of it remote. So what would be the reason for having people, you know, go back to a one to two hour commute, for instance? And going back to what you said about it's hard to collaborate when everybody's remote. So there does need to be some face-to-face interaction in the office. So what have you experienced working with managers at various companies where they have seen it difficult to collaborate and generate ideas to further grow the company and complete their objectives? I think, you know, if we step back for a minute, we need to just applaud everyone for what they have managed to achieve over the past year and a half. Because if 
you know, for those companies saying, well, I didn't really see a bump in productivity, you know, I would argue if you didn't see a big drop in productivity, that is actually a huge gain because people were living through a global pandemic and managed to continue working, continue producing, and in many cases, continue thrive, like helping businesses thrive through this. And in many ways, that doesn't make sense. Like it, it shouldn't have, have happened that way. So I, I applaud all of those employees that were able to, you know, some with one day's notice, set up shop virtually and remotely and and able to do that. That being said, you know, we're still learning things about Zoom, for instance, that people still don't know if they're on mute or not, and all of, you know, how best to, to use it. And some people are just obviously more comfortable than others in terms of being able to use it more effectively for things like collaboration. What we've seen with some of our clients and people we've worked with is a struggle to build trust and vulnerability, which are really key ingredients to creating a more collaborative, psychologically safe environment for people to come up with new and innovative ideas. So there can definitely be a challenge when you are doing it remotely and you have to work that much harder. Some have done a great job with it and others, I would say, bypassed a lot of those little things that you think you don't need, like the happy hours or, you know, the get to know you, the things that actually many of us cringe or roll our eyes at. But those are the things we do need to make sure you you know people you work with and you can build trust and build those relationships to get that collaboration happening. So it's definitely possible in a remote world. You can ask companies that have always been remote. However, it takes more effort. To add to what you were saying in terms of like getting the face-to-face time, like interacting with people during happy hour, uh, the, the one thing for people that want to work remotely fully or majority re- remote the issue would be like in terms of getting that face time with executives and directors to get promotions. There has been, you can correct me around, there has been studies that show that when you like interact with like the higher ups and in combination with good work, you tend to be in line for those promotions. But if you mm-hmm. lose that face time and you just work remotely, you're not going to get that uh, exposure to the higher executives that could give you that promotion, that next step up. Do you think that that's going to be an issue down the road or do you think that we will adapt? So I think it can be an issue if that is something that's not on the radar for those doing the promotions and that they're not being intentional about making sure it's evening the the playing field for those who continue to work remotely and those who are in the office. So if nothing changes you're probably still unfortunately going to have that where people who are getting that FaceTime in will continue to be top of mind, you know, the biases of top of mind awareness, recency effect, etc, that they may see their career advancing at a faster rate than those who are not in the office and having that FaceTime. However, there are ways around that bias. If we are aware of the bias, you can start to figure out how to mitigate it. And that's on the organizations to determine how best they can go through, you know, determining career advancement and and promotions in ways that doesn't rely on, you know, who they just think would be a good manager because they're in the office or they're charismatic and people like them and they're social. So it requires a lot more intentionality. And to talk about Zoom fatigue, which I'm pretty sure you're familiar with, why is it different than face-to-face interaction? Like you see the person on the screen. I understand if it's like a group of people, then you, you have a lot of faces on the screen, but if it's one-on-one, 
but you do a lot of these like Zoom meetings, you tend to get fatigue and it doesn't happen with like face-to-face, like in-person. Why is that? So there are a number of reasons. I think, you know, from a physiological perspective, we're not used to having the kind of eye contact that's required in a face-to-face Zoom. You mentioned, I'll talk in a minute about the one-on-one, but you mentioned, you know, a screen of faces. If you're in a meeting with a number of people, you're not looking at all of those people at once. You're going to be looking around the room. You're going to be looking at the person speaking. And so it can create a lot of fatigue of just that constant eye contact. Another one is we tend to not be as physically close in person. So the camera frame makes us very close up, like where we would maybe be in each other's personal space when if we if we spoke like this in person. So that can be another thing that's very exhausting. People not getting up and moving around. You have that ability when you're in person, not only in between meetings. So getting up and, you know, walking, even if it's back-to-back meetings, you're walking to the next meeting or you're, you know, taking a break, filling up water, et cetera. People have taken the liberties of filling up people's schedules with back-to-back Zoom meetings thinking, well, there's no need for transition time. There's no need for time to move between meetings. And and also, you know, at the end of the day, in the beginning of the day, you see that too. People don't have that transition that they used to have in the commute. And I'm not advocating for a commute. You know, obviously people don't want to add an hour or two to their their day just traveling. But there is something to be said for having that transition, whether it be even, you know, a five, 10 minute walk or something to to show the difference between being at home and working. And now people, you know, I have one client that said he before never had meetings before 9am really because they considered that travel time. And now he's getting all his meetings booked in at 8am because they look at it and say, well, he doesn't need travel time. Like these people don't need travel time. So you're not only having all these meetings with intense eye contact, it's just really exhausting. It's even very exhausting looking at yourself (laughs) all day. We're not used to that. We don't typically have a mirror when we're in a meeting at the office. And it's going back to back to back and they're and they're longer days. To go to what you said about um, your, your clients having like 8 a.m. meetings. So yes, there's less of a commute time or, or no commute time. But now people believe that employers are taking advantage of that and like people tend to working more than they should, right? Because for example, uh, people used to have like a lunch break. They would like sit with their team and then like have a chit chat as a social break, right? And then what happened was when people are working remotely, they end up just working through the lunch. And then meetings might get extended to 6 p.m. So do you see with your clients or or just the workforce in general that people are being overworked more now because it's fully remote now compared to when they was in the office where people can move back and forth? Yeah. So that's the, the interesting situation where you have some businesses thinking or some organizations thinking people aren't working as hard because they're working from home when the reality is that they're working more hours because their days are stretched out more now, whereas before they might have had to leave the office at a certain time to do daycare pickup, for instance, but now kids were, you know, at home with us for for most of the year. So, you know, there's that where the days stretch out, of course, there's more things happening in in certain people's homes, like they might have other generations with them, be elderly parents or kids with them that, that they weren't typically used to. So that can be distracting through the day. But I think for the most part, employees did an amazing job of of managing that and you know another thing too is that they could take these opportunities to 
throw in laundry, for instance, in the lunch hour. And so they, they really then began stretching out their day with work that they maybe had more a more defined work day when you physically went somewhere and then physically left because you had to be home at a certain time or for dinner. You know, in Toronto here, the go train only work like only goes at certain times. So people had to leave the office and, and now they don't. And in terms of people coming back to work, so we both live in Toronto area and there's a big push to get people back into a normal, somewhat of a normal life in September. And we've seen like companies giving like, you can work wherever you want, doesn't matter. Some want the flex model. And again, some few companies might try to do the nine to five. So where do you see, as, as you said, it'd be interesting to see how it plays out, but where do you see the, the, the balance uh, that will come in terms of the future of work? So I think it is going to end up in a hybrid situation for most companies. How that hybrid looks, I think that will be a little bit of testing with that. If you're going to have half the office in on, you know, two days a week and the other half two days a week, and then maybe that that fifth day, you know, you rotate, I, I'm not sure. The other is some companies might say, well, you can work hybrid, but we need everyone here on certain days to have that collaboration or to have our meetings, etc. So that's where I think it's going to land. I have to say from a management perspective, it's probably the most difficult of all of the structures. <laughs> so when you compare it to straight remote, straight in office and hybrid, hybrid will likely be the most difficult to manage. But I think that's the one that probably people will be the happiest with when they look at their choices and as well as, you know, organizations, like you said, they're looking to bring them back downtown. Some are moving more to a hoteling model where you just plug in to whatever desk is available as opposed to having set real estate for for each person. So that to that move, that trend, I would say would support as well more of a hybrid model happening. Yeah, that makes sense, right? Because like, if you have a team of five and two people want to work on Monday and three want to work on Tuesday, then there's not really any collaboration when you can just show up whenever you want. So I, I do see like maybe teams do have to book together so they're actually all at the office at the same time. And then, of course, you have to look at factors like we're we like to say we're in a post-pandemic world, but we're not. So you're still looking at social distancing. And so it's still going to be a while till it settles down into, you know, more of a new normal and how that will will look. And and I think that's when companies at least they're going to have some trials and testing and seeing what what's going to work for them. You know, if you're having meetings with half remote and half there, then you're, of course, trying going back to that idea of like trying to make the people who aren't there feel involved and engaged and in the room without physically being in the room. All right. So we, we talked about how people are, are in terms of the, the work environment now and what the future holds. So as people are ramping to get back into the office, what some what are some advice that you can provide for managers that are getting ready to go back in the fall? So I think managers are going to, you know, they, ha they have a lot of challenges uh, on their plate, I would say. One is they will likely have a very different looking team than they started with a year and a half ago. So you had likely have people leaving the team, people starting jobs where they've never physically met any of their coworkers. So, you know, the composition of the team is probably going to look different than what they started with pre-pandemic. And you're going to be looking at 
it's going to be a little bit of like new onboarding. So very likely you did onboarding when someone new started, but then you have an extra level of onboarding when it starts back in the office that they you haven't had to address with you know how things work in the office, how things are structured, etc. You're also dealing with a workforce that's exhausted. So we're seeing a lot of signs of burnout in the workplace. And so managers obviously are always tasked with making sure you know, things are being done and there's outcomes and, you know, they have goals and objectives, but of course it's, it's also the the mental health of their employees and where they're at emotionally and mentally. And I think we haven't yet started really unpacking that and dealing with that. And that's why, you know, you're hearing of the great resignation happening this fall or, you know, it's coming and, some would say, well, why is it happening now? Like, why is it happening after all of this acute, the acute world pandemic situation that we're all, that we were all dealing with? It's because sometimes you need it, that time to reflect and, and to sit with it for a little bit. So I think you're going to be dealing with a lot of employees that are finally going to catch up, like their thinking's going to catch up with what's happened over the past year and a half. And then a lot of managers also need to do that for themselves. And they haven't done that yet, or they're feeling the signs of burnout for themselves. And so It's also going to be a situation of, you know, we always hear the plain analogy of putting your own mask on before you can put it on your child. And so the same thing I think is going to need to happen for managers. They're going to really have to start figuring out their own self-care and making sure that they're looking at their own workload and what they can handle before they can really start taking on their staff and, and figuring out how best to support them. So to continue on the managerial conversation, there are going to be some uh, unhappy uh, people on the team that you know don't really want to go back to the office, especially if they have a long commute. So how would a manager make uh, these individual contributors on their team feel comfortable and engaged uh, as people start transitioning back into like a normal type of work life? Right, right. And that, that's another level too. So then you're also going to have people that are not happy <laughs> with the with the situation that, that they're in either. You know, it's not going to be fully remote and they want it to be fully remote. Some it's going to be fully remote and they don't want to be fully remote. You know, they want that that ability to socialize and collaborate in person, etc. So you're very likely going to have some that you're right, that that aren't happy. As managers, I think we need to look at what is your sphere of influence, right? So there are things that you can make an impact on from your role, but also understanding that there are things outside of your control and not taking on the burden of the outcomes of those situations. So if you have staff members that are set on staying remote and and unfortunately due to organizational policy, et cetera, you can't offer that, if they leave because of that, you can't take on that burden. That's that's not your fault. You you know, you can't do anything about it. So looking at where you can influence things, I think is is key. Another one, you know, related to that is on pay. We always t- tend to emphasize to managers, you know, where you can increase motivation and engagement. And a lot of times those do not cost money. They are things you can do for free. However, if you are not meeting minimum of what people need for cost of living, expenses, etc., 
throwing all of those or trying to do all of those other engaging activities isn't going to do anything. It's not really going to going to help you much. It's called the motivation hygiene factor. So you need to hit certain hygiene, we say, where, you know, if you if you've ever heard of Maslow's hierarchy, like making sure people have food, water, shelter, you cannot go to the top levels of the hierarchy and start trying to get people to, you know, self-actualize before they've they've met those basic needs. So if your organization isn't able to offer those basic needs and someone leaves for those reasons, you also cannot do anything about that. That being said, if those are being met and you're still dealing with people who are either passively disengaged or actively disengaged and how we differentiate those is passively would just be like they're a warm body they're not really doing anything they're not really in into their work passively disengaged is like they could actually sacrifice other people's work and and be detrimental to the organization but those are things that you can work on with individuals to figure out how they can best increase their levels of engagement and motivation. And a lot of it comes down to trying to encourage ways to increase autonomy. So for instance, if it's not that they can work remote 100%, can it be maybe everyone has to be there during core hours, but those core hours no longer need to be eight to five, for instance, or nine to five. Maybe it's everyone should be there between 11 and two and the meetings happen in that time. But outside of that, you have flexibility. So that then can help on reducing commute times, for instance, because not everyone's having to come into the office at the exact same time. You know, obviously giving them autonomy in the work that they're doing. People don't enjoy being micromanaged and thought that they're not working when someone's not watching. And so being able to, you know, support them and provide any support that they need, but encouraging them to take on more autonomy in, in determining how work should be done um, where you're not watching it all the time and you're you're not micromanaging it. So those are just, you know, we can go on with a couple more tips, but those are just a few ways that you can help build the engagement and motivation for people who for other reasons outside of your control may not be, you know, maybe suffering from a little bit of lack of, of motivation and engagement. You talked in your article that there isn't that big a difference between thinking of quitting and actually quitting. So can you elaborate more on that? Right. It does depend on when you're thinking of quitting, what that means, like how that manifests, how that shows itself. But if you have someone who is thinking of quitting but doesn't, they can be more detrimental than someone who who quits. So we all know that to replace someone, it can, you know, the costs are very high. It's estimated up to the cost of one year's salary of that position to replace them. But if you have someone actively disengaged in their job where they are not only not doing their work, but they can actually be getting involved in other people's work and making that not happen. Um, you can see very quickly how that can become a cancer that spreads through through the organization. So they can take a department or a team who works together really well and has a lot of engagement and, and motivation and completely sync all of it very quickly for the whole entire team if they do not want to be there and they're thinking of quitting, but they don't actually quit. Yeah, because like a negative atmosphere spreads fairly quickly. So if you mm -hmm. have a warm body that's not really engaged, 
then people around this person can feel the same way. And then that is going to lead to a very bad environment overall. And then you have the whole team uh, disengage at that point, right? Yeah, they, they can definitely, like, you can spread. Like, you, you know, I'm sure you've walked into to a room or you met someone that just their energy level, I've referred to some, like, some just come with this, like, energy sucking capability and they just suck the energy right out of the room. So that can happen. But even to the point where, like, where they can sabotage others and sabotage their work. So it becomes a very toxic environment. So you no longer just dealing with one person who doesn't want to be there, isn't that into their job, it can spread to to others. Because the other thing is those who do want to be there, who, you know, do have good engagement, will look at this person saying, why are they still here? You know, why are they still part of the team, etc. So there might be a big a domino effect coming when people start going back to work. So what I mean by that is, let's say you're a manager, you have about five people on the team, a few of them are not happy, and then they end up like looking for another uh, place to work, and then they leave, and then your team short staff. So what type of advice would you give managers to, in terms of like not panicking when people start turning over very quickly in the new future, potentially? Right, because the challenge with that too is those who remain, you know, they end up in the survivor effect where they get all the work <laughs> of the people who left, right? So now you've not only lost people who've left, but you're also dealing with others who start feeling overburdened with all of the work left behind by by those coworkers. So I think before you get to that point, it's really trying to see what's happening and making sure that you have a really good pulse. So one thing I said is really looking at the canaries in the the coal mine. It's not necessarily the people, but just some of the behaviors and actions that you might be seeing might be a pretty good indicator that morale is suffering. And it's something that you need to be proactive as opposed to reactive and wait till people leave. So figuring out what those those symptoms are and addressing them head on before it happens. And then also figuring out where you can start supporting and developing and coaching those people who either are looking to leave or like you said, if people have left the ones that are remaining, this is a time to spend more time with those people. So I know what happens in in a lot of management levels is they think I should just start taking on more work because people left. So I'll take on the those tasks. I'll take on those people's tasks. But it's it's at that time they should be spending more time with the other people to help them feel supported and giving attention and coaching and motivating, et cetera, to those who have remained. So it it uh, it's counterintuitive, but it's in a way spending less time on the work <laughs> when there's more work and helping those who are doing the work, supporting them through that. So how would you have conversations with people that you know are disengaged? Like, it's probably a difficult conversation. You, you wouldn't say, I know you're not really interested in your work right now, right? Like, I'm assuming you wouldn't go that way. So how would you approach that? <laughs> how would you? You know, it depends on the person. Maybe you would. You know, if it's if you have the right type of relationship with them. And, you know, I mentioned the word psychological safety earlier on. And that's another you know, I'd say buzzword, but I think it's an important buzzword in organizations is your what you really want to do is create an environment where people can feel they can be candid. 
So psychological safety is not about tiptoeing around. You know, I've, I've heard the word snowflakes, like, oh, just making it more comfortable for snowflakes, PC culture, etc. Psychological safety is actually about creating an environment where you can be very candid and you can speak up when you don't like things. You can speak up when you have failed at something, when you don't like an idea, but it takes building a psychologically safe environment for people to feel comfortable doing that. So making sure, for instance, that when they do that, like if someone says to you straight out, I'm not happy, is listening to them and not either turning on them for saying their opinion on that or using it against them later. If you can show that, you're going to build goodwill and trust over time so people feel like this is an environment I can be honest and and forthcoming on. In those environments, yeah, you can. You can go right up to the person and say, like, I'm sensing you're not happy right now. Is that right? Like, do do I have this? And that's it too, is making sure if you do have these conversations, you're not putting your feelings and assumptions as, you know, the the facts of the matter is you may share how, like what you've observed, what you've noticed, but giving them the opportunity to say, well, yes or or no. But I can tell you, if you have not built a psychologically safe environment, they're just going to give you a line of, no, everything's fine. Everything's fine. So in those situations, then I think it's if, if your spidey sense is telling you they don't seem happy is trying to dig a little bit deeper about where the unhappiness is coming from and figuring out, like I said, what's within your sphere of influence that you can make an impact on helping change. Sometimes the big one is not giving things to people. It's actually clearing obstacles. So if, you know, someone's grumbling about a lot of times it's like red tape or bureaucracy, right? So clearing those obstacles for them can increase engagement and and satisfaction. But it's looking at the things that you think might be getting in the way of their satisfaction, happiness, et cetera, and figuring out how can I clear that for them and how can I make things easier for them? You bring up a good point in terms of having that comfortable environment where you can reach out to your manager. There are some managers, as you know, that do not have that approachability. Like, for example, let's say I'm working with a manager and it seems like every time I ask them a question, I'm bothering them. Like, you probably have worked with people that have that sense. So how do you like build that approachability where your team can come up and talk to you whenever they have an issue. <laughs> we could get into that big time. I, I think a lot of that actually has to do with generational differences <laughs> on, you know, you you tend to see a lot of millennials saying that they feel like they're bothering their their bosses if they go in and ask questions, et cetera. And then, you know, you have boomer bosses or even Gen X bosses not really wanting to spend the time and, and maybe writing them off. So they feel like it's, it's justified in what they're feeling. But then you have the younger generation coming in raised by the Gen Xers who just tell it like it is. They're the cynical jaded generation. So they've raised children with a little bit of a similar mindset. So they're they're the ones coming in and they will tell you. So they might not even need the psychologically safe environment. They'll be like, I'm not happy and this is why. I don't like this. And that actually, going back to the great resignation, it is definitely driven by the younger generations. It's, it's heavily, the statistics show that it's heavily weighted on the younger ages that are looking to make that move. So they're coming right out and saying, I don't like this. I'm not happy. I'm making a move. 
going back to how do you create more of that environment? One is to be self-aware. So if I, you know, you're talking about someone who says they have an open door policy, but makes a person feel like that they're bothering them, you, the first step is you need to be self-aware and understanding that maybe you're not being as welcoming as you should be, or you need to be with that stuff. If there that isn't there, I don't think you'd be even looking for, like you wouldn't be asking that question, right? But if you are, if you're like, okay, I, I want this open office, but people keep feeling like they're, you know, bothering me, or they'll start every sentence with sorry to bother you, is even setting those expectations. That is a big thing I see in the workplace where people have relationships with unexpressed and unwritten expectations of each other. And that is where a lot of conflict arises. So many times it's about expressing or writing down, it doesn't necessarily need to be as formal as writing down, but definitely expressing expectations that you have of each other, because you can get to a lot of those assumptions you make and realize that that's exactly what they are as assumptions. You said that Gen Z and millennials are the majority of people that are contributing to the great resonation. Mm -hmm. So the, the thing that I've seen like I'm a millennial myself. The thing I've seen is that the younger generation don't tend to stick to stick around at jobs for that long. Maybe I guess two to three years. Do you think that's going to be a detriment later down the road when they don't have longer tenures compared to like Gen X and older that have longer tenures uh, throughout their career? No, I don't. I, I I think that's just the way it is now. You're not seeing the loyalty you saw with the traditionalists, for instance, who got the gold watch when they retired. Baby boomers, I think, had longer tenure, but even theirs wasn't nearly as long. Gen X were the ones that started the conversation on like, I don't love how this works here and I'm going to start speaking up. Millennials is where you really saw the, you know, the stereotype of the job jumping happen happening. However, things are really changing. They're really fast paced. So, you know, people are now working in jobs or careers that people didn't even know about five, 10 years ago. The other is, truthfully, traditionalists were able to be really loyal to their companies because companies were really loyal to them. And you're not seeing that reciprocation happening anymore. So when, you know, you're, you're basically dealing with these younger generations that have seen multiple economic downturns with massive layoffs happening. And so they were given the message that they were expendable and therefore they needed to think about their own career. I personally don't see it being held against them because I think it's indicative of not only the generations, but where we were at. And as millennials getting older and Gen Z getting more experience in the workforce, they will eventually be the majority of the management or middle, at least middle management of multiple companies. So yeah. in combination with like the hybrid model, the new way to work and the younger generation becoming managers, where do you see the workforce and having a great dynamic work environment? Actually, interestingly, the younger generation coming in they're they're showing to be a little bit more, they want the longer tenure, funny enough, which is a bit surprising. But I think they, if they can see 
stability, they will go for a longer tenure. Why you're seeing the great resignation driven by them is they're not seeing stability. But in terms of where their feelings are at, they would be happy to stay at companies longer than, let's say, millennials. They're looking for more change and the movement happens that way. I think what you're going to get over time is you may also see even a shift towards the type of work. So, And we, we already started seeing it with the sharing economy and more of the, you know, contract workers. And so that's what you, I would imagine you might see a little bit more of is even the relationship of the, the traditional relationship of employee employer shifting over time. And it's more related to project-based work or consulting or contract-based work. And then you move on to a different one when that's done. So you may see a lot of shifting happening, but it's because people aren't working for one organization in particular anymore. So th- that bring, that raises a good point. So you, do you see more of a gig economy environment later down the road instead of the historical standard like full-time employee? Yeah, I can see it moving towards that. I really would caution employees moving more towards that to watch how they structure it because I think it could be to the detriment of the individual versus the company. What I've seen over and over again when people try to you know, set up shop or go contract, et cetera, they undervalue themselves because you tend to, you're not comparing apples to apples when you're looking at what you're paid as an employee versus as a contractor. And so, but they'll price themselves that way. And they haven't taken into account like no benefits, pension, you know, overhead costs, et cetera. And we've seen that with the gig economy is it has not resulted in wealth creation, a lot of wealth creation for the for the younger demographic. If anything, it's resulted in more gigs that they've had to do to try to, you know, make up for those losses. And so they're working more side hustles and more hours to make a livable wage as opposed to, you know, the full-time salaried position. So I can see it moving that way. I think people need to just watch how that is structured because I think, and companies will do what they can to take advantage of that. And obviously they're not going to offer to pay more. Well, it'll definitely be interesting in terms of how the next few years will play out as things go back to somewhat of a normal. So I want to end this discussion with a question for you. So my podcast deals with helping professionals overcome challenges to further their career. So for you, Christine, what has been one big career roadblock that you had faced and how did you overcome it and how has it made you the person you are today? Okay. Um, Roadblock. I don't know if it was necessarily a roadblock, but I think I had maybe a mid-career crisis that many wouldn't have until they were maybe my age now in my (laughs) mid-20s. So I went to business school. I have a Bachelor of Commerce. And then I went and did a master's, an MBA. So, you know, going up that traditional corporate ladder route was always what I've been taught was success. And that's where you go. And I realized in my mid to late 20s that that is not where I wanted to be nor where I could thrive. I realized at that age that I wanted to, I needed to work for myself. I was just not a great employee. And I don't think you see people have those realizations all the time at that age. I do love the 
youthful spirit in a lot of these startups. And what I've noticed is they tend to be startups straight out of university. So whereas I had, you know, five to seven years of, well, it was more than that, like seven plus years of work experience in the corporate, more corporate environment and went like, this isn't what I want to be doing. I'm going to, I'm going to change the rules for me and redefine what success is and what I've been told is success. And I credit knowing myself for figuring that out. I, you know, many people grew up doing sports, et cetera. I grew up doing student government and when going on all these retreats and doing all of these personality assessments and like really figuring out who I was. So, you know, from a young age, I've known what my strengths are and, and who I am, but it took time to realize that it didn't align necessarily with the path I was heading on. But I think it it was shorter than maybe some other people <laughs> because I was like, you know what? This is not for me. This is not where I want to spend my time and, and I don't want to climb the traditional ladder. So I'm going to hop off and success is going to look different to me. And I honestly have not looked back since. I actually uh, published my podcast episode today and I was talking to an individual. It's, it's about career linearity is not career success. Like they, they have nothing to do with each other. And right. you're a perfect example of that. You had, you had to try and discover yourself before you found out what you really want to do, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So again, I really appreciate your time in terms of help, uh, discussing the great resonation with me. How can people connect with you online to learn more about you? Thanks so much for having me, Max. It's been a pleasure and this past hour flew by. So you can reach me at the cfactorcommunity.com. That's the best way. So that is a new community that my partner out of the US and I, we started to help mid-level managers support them through not only growing their leadership skills and expertise, but also providing with them a community of other managers going through similar challenges that they could bounce ideas off of that they weren't either reporting to or working directly with so they you know can have that community so that's cfactorcommunity.com and the email is just hello at cfactorcommunity and then i also have my other business which is designing leadership programs for companies and teams and leaders and doing coaching there as well and that's surefire and that's spelled it's an odd one because it's it uses my last name so it's ch E-U-R and then fire, F-I-R-E dot com. And it's Christine with a C-H at surefire.com. So you can catch me there. I'm also on the socials. So, you know, Instagram, LinkedIn, all of those too. So would be happy to connect. Thank you again, Christine. And we'll see what the fall brings us when it comes to the new normal of work. I hope people, I hope managers, I hope leaders get on it. So it's not the great resignation that we think is going to happen. That it's, it's more of a, you know, it's more of a little wave as opposed to a big tidal wave. Thank you to Christine for sharing her insights on the great resignation. This is definitely a trending career topic that I believe a lot of people listening to this episode will find value in. If you want to listen to the recap show where I share my own thoughts and insights on this episode's topic of the great resignation, make sure to check out ChanCap this Friday morning. Again, this is Chan with a plan, the podcast, a podcast providing career advice and easy actionable steps for frustrated professionals, helping you overcome career challenges so you can stop feeling confused and defeated and start feeling focused and confident in order to excel in your career. I'm your host, Max Chan, and I thank you for listening.